we continue our study in the theology and application of prayer, open, if you will, to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. Go to the front of your Bible. You have Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel. Chapter 2. We're going to look at Hannah's prayer this morning. First, let's open in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for your church. We thank you that uh, we are part of what makes up your church. Gathered here this morning as we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do so as I communicate this truth to these your people and uh, fill our minds and hearts with a greater understanding uh, of the privilege we have of being in union with you and communion and the glorious gift of prayer. In Christ's name, amen. For Samuel 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This ends the reading of God's word. Um, We live um, in an age in which waiting has gone out of fashion. We live in an instant world. Um, I remember in 1997, do you remember dial-up internet? (laughs) You'd dial it up and you'd walk away and go do something else until the web page loaded. I mean, it was a luxury. And now, if it doesn't upload within a split second, very irritating. Or cell phones 20 years ago, only the uh, richest of the rich had. And now we can text. And if you don't reply to me in 30 seconds, or if one of my children doesn't reply to me in 30 seconds, 
I wonder what's wrong. And it used to be that uh, to write a letter, you'd have to sit down with pen and paper and, and, and actually um, make use of, of the art of handwriting. Remember, is anyone still writing cursive? Good. Good, because I used to. <laughs> my father gave me some letters that I actually wrote him when I was in my 20s, and I was like, wow, my cursive writing penmanship was very good. Now I just print in all caps. But, you know, you'd write a letter and you'd hope um, that we'd, uh, you'd, you'd have a return letter within two weeks or so. But now everything is so instant. We live in an instant world, and that really challenges us um, as regards to, to our praying because we think of prayer, I think, as something that um, is an instant supply line um, to God to, to petition him and as regards our wants, and then we want fast, immediate results. Now, there are things that we ought to ask for which we do receive immediate results, and that is obviously for forgiveness, um, wisdom in, in time of need, uh, strength when we're in an, an evangelistic setting to, to share the gospel, to proclaim Christ. That, that he will indeed grant us the wisdom and the strength that we need to speak about Christ. Those are, those are in the moment kind of prayers that God is always faithful to, to answer. But if we get trapped there in, in this state of immediacy, thinking that uh, prayer is merely getting what we want right now, uh, we will struggle all our lives to pray. We will struggle because prayer, as we are learning, I hope, it doesn't work like that. Over the course of our study, we've seen the heartbeat of prayer. We've looked at uh, prayers of of Moses. We looked at some Old Testament prayers and that uh, really prayer is asking God to make good uh, on his sovereign saving purposes, which is really a long-term plan that's being worked out. And this is where I believe much of the difficulty um, that we may face in prayer will dissipate since prayer itself is uh, rightly understood as submitting to God's sovereignty rather than competing with it. We're submitting to his sovereignty. We're not competing with his sovereignty. So it's a matter really of asking God um, to accomplish his purposes, not, not change them but to accomplish them. This is why God answered Moses' prayer in in Exodus and Numbers. We looked at a couple of the prayers of Moses, and God answered them not because of the character of the intercessor, that is, the character of Moses. It wasn't because of Moses' negotiating skills, but it was because of God's faithfulness solely on the basis of God's commitment to his people. God's commitment. God is faithful. Now, when we look at God's big agenda for you, for me, for the world, we soon realize there's nothing I can do to advance God's cause 
We're not going to advance God's cause. Not a single inch. Therefore, knowing this, understanding that, that drives me to pray. This is the pattern we see in Scripture. And then when I begin to see the details of my life and in your lives um, under God's grand plan, we'll see that there's nothing I can do in and of myself but to submit to what? God's will, God's purpose, God's sovereignty, God's providence. And that's what we see in this prayer this morning. And it's all through the gospel. We see it through the lens of the gospel that, that God is faithful, God is true. He has made a promise as he did. And we looked at Genesis 3.15 that the Bible unfolds that plan and we see its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the king of the kingdom. He came, he died, he rose again, he ascended. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and he's in absolute control. The sovereign king. I want you to listen to a couple quotes from uh, John Frame, his uh, magnum opus, The Theology and Philosophy of Western Culture. He says this, and this is in context to open theism. Open theism is a heresy that, that declares that God is still learning along the way, believe it or not. God is learning and along the way and responding along the way versus the fact that he foreknows all. And to foreknow is not to foresee. To foreknow is to foreordain. Frame says this, and I quote, If God foreknows everything that happens, he thereby renders every event certain. So if God foreknows everything, everything that happens must happen, and there can be... No libertarian free will. There are two possible solutions to this dilemma. Either deny libertarian free will, that is, adopt Calvinism, or deny exhaustive divine foreknowledge, open theists, choose the second alternative. Open theists, deny the exhaustive divine foreknowledge of God. Frame continues. How can God be responsive to our prayers if God controls the outcome of our prayers before we utter them? Well, because his eternal plan, Frame says, has established that many events on earth take place because of prayer. End quote. Prayers are a means to God's end. God prompts us to pray. We pray and we see God's will. Being done. And another example of this is, is Hannah's prayer right here in 1 Samuel. Miller points out in, in his book that, that I've been citing, he says, At first, we're left to assume that this is an extreme case of a woman longing to start a family. The very human drama of a dysfunctional household and the pain of childlessness has often led readers to miss the stunning impact of 1 Samuel chapter 2. And we're going to see that as we unfold this prayer. Now, let's go back and 
first get a little background in case you're not familiar with it. Just look back at chapter 1. Here's a man, Elkanah, had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other, Penina. Penina had children. Hannah had no children. Now, verse 3, this man used to go up every year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. Who closed her womb? The Lord. Why was she not able to have children? Up to this point, because the Lord ordained it to be that way. And her rival, this is the problem, having two wives, her rival, to provoke, you used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. This drives her to pray. She's deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord. She wept bitterly. Verse 10, and notice in verse 11, she vowed and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. She vows to dedicate him as a Nazarite to the Lord. But year after year, imagine the stress and the tension for this woman. Dale Ralph Davis, in his commentary, says this. Year after year, it went on, baiting Hannah, irritating her, winding her up until the sobs broke out, goading her to complain against God. In any case, it drove Hannah to God. It drove her to the throne of grace, to to the presence of Yahweh, to fervent supplication, from which eventually came Samuel, her son. Let us not play down the heavy grief of Hannah's or our own bleak circumstances, but let us moderate our despair by realizing it, here it is, it may be but another prelude to a mighty work of God. End quote. Now, the prayer, the outline, comes in three parts. Verses 1 through 3 expresses Hannah's distress. Notice the personal pronouns, I and my, indicate she begins with her own experience. Second part, verses 4 through 8, Hannah says that this this reflects God's ways and how he rules. God's ways and how he rules, verses 4 through 8. And then in verses 9 and 10, express how it will be when God Almighty finally, ultimately rules through his anointed one, 
So think about this. Try to put yourself in the shoes of Hannah or the sandals of Hannah. It's understandable that, that she's rejoicing in one sense. I mean, she's born this son. A son has been born to her. All this grief and all this stress and all of these years of humiliation. Now, these are two wives that lived in the same home. Penina had children coming out of her ears, if you will. She just, one after another. Hannah was left barren. And there was mockery that she wasn't able to have children. So God hears her prayers. God visits her. He comes to her. And that which she probably began to think was impossible, God in his grace made possible. So imagine yourself standing here now. Here's your four-year-old son. He's now weaned from his mother, and she now has to hand him over to this priest that she presumably could trust. It's hard to conceive this, what was going on in her mind. Because remember, she made a vow. And she made a vow when, when back in the day when vows were, were made and kept. And here she is, handing over her son. But notice she's worshiping. She's in the place of worship. She's in the house of God at, at Shiloh. There's a tabernacle. There's no temple yet. She's come to the place where where, where God has promised his presence to his people. And she cries out to the Lord. This is a prayer. This is a song. This is a psalm. And the prayer is full of allusions and anticipations of, of other Old Testament passages. God is faithful. And the dominant theme in the prayer is the providence of God. It's God's providence that's on display. The the providence of God is the overruling of God. He rules, he reigns. This happens according to God's order. He orders things to happen the way that they happen. And she's rejoicing in that. See, Hannah, she learned to read the providence of God in her own life. That jumps out through this prayer. Notice verse 1. My heart exalts, that is my heart rejoices in the Lord. So the, the, the dominant point here is that she's thankful. She's thankful to the Lord. You can imagine that perhaps there was a bit of regret. You might think, is there regret here? I mean, she has to hand this son over. She might have regretted having made that vow. She's just a human, she's a human being. But the first thing for us is to see that she's thankful. Notice, this is the spirit of contentment. To be thankful is to be content. It's the spirit of well-being in Hannah that's being expressed. You know, you can only achieve that, that is contentment, if you live your life or grow to learn to live your life under the umbrella of God's providence. That's what we try to press here regularly. When we understand God's providence, we understand um, his sovereignty, 
well, you never understand his sovereignty, but submit yourself to his sovereignty and his providential will. Uh, That's where contentment is born. She saw her life under the control of God, every part of her life, every aspect of her life, all the details of her life, family life, marriage, her children, this little Samuel, and then in, in, in response she rejoices. She exalts in the Lord. It's like Paul in Philippians 1. Okay, Paul writes, he's locked up, he's in prison. He knew that, that his death was possible. We know that he was released. While he was locked up, he didn't know that. He didn't know he'd be released. He was facing possible execution. And as you remember, he urges his beloved Philippian brothers and sisters to be filled with joy, to be filled with thanksgiving, because he says it's through this trial, it's through this, this peculiar event that the gospel is now being spoken where? Caesar's household. In Caesar's household. Because I'm locked up, the gospel goes forth. That's how he saw it. So in other words, he, he learned to view his trials, his difficulties, his problems as part of a much larger picture. And this is what we're after in this whole theme of prayer. Our lives are just but one part of God's grandiose plan. That was Moses' issue, remember? When he was ordered to go into Pharaoh and he was rejected and he was downcast because of his personal experience. And then God groomed him and matured him in an understanding that, that God was carrying out a much grander plan that far exceeds just Moses and his comfort. You know, there's tension here when you do studies like this for personal application. This we know and this we trust and this is how we want to grow. But every time you do a study like this, you always wonder, man, is he preparing me for something? (laughs) Is he preparing me to trust? under the umbrella of his providence. So here's Hannah. She comes to this point in her life, in her experience of the Lord's ways. In her life, she contemplates this, she meditates on this, and and she knows that despite the darkness, despite the trials, despite all the difficulties and problems, God has an overarching plan. And this is where she rejoices. Not rejoicing because of the trial. It's not masochistic or anything like that. Who rejoices in the trial? She rejoices in the midst of it. And now she's on the other end of it. She sees that she's merely an instrument in the outworking mighty plan of God. That's why Paul could say, I've learned that whatever state I'm in, to be content. Here's Hannah. Content. Spirit of contentment in a difficult place. It's a difficult task. She hands her son over to this priest. Now, she would visit him from time to time. She was able to visit her son. But nevertheless, she finds her strength in the exaltation of the Lord. 
My mouth, notice she says, my mouth derides my enemies. Penina was an enemy. Because I rejoice in your salvation, she says. That's the first thing that we see. She learned to read her life in view of the providence of God. That's the first lesson. Beloved, until we get to this point, we'll always be discontent. Until you begin to submit yourself to the providence of God, the rule of God, the sovereign ruling power of God, there'll be a certain discontentedness within our hearts. And we can learn from Hannah. Notice we move on in the prayer. We see that that God's providence reflects God's character. God's providence reflects his character. You notice in the second verse, it's like a mini catechism almost or a mini systematic theology. Notice there's none holy like the Lord. Remember when Isaiah went into the temple in Isaiah 6? In the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up, seated on the throne, seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. What Isaiah do in response? Began to come undone at the seams. He was conscious of his sin conscious of the fact that that he should not be in the presence of the Holy One. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of an unclean people. Isaiah had the cleanest lips in Israel. He was a prophet of God. But in the face of God's holiness, who cannot even look upon sin, because God is so far removed from sin and sinners the creator of the ends of the earth, all Isaiah could do in response was say, woe is me. Woe is me. And here's Hannah exalting the holy character of God. It's no wonder God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Notice there's none besides you There's none besides you. That that is a statement of Jewish monotheism. Amidst all of these pagan gods that surround us, you are the one true God. Those gods are no gods at all. There's none besides you, she says. She loves this God. She worships this God. She has uh, covenant fellowship with this God. She rests in this God. She has a relationship with this God. She has communion with this God, and she reveres this God. For he alone is God. Let me cite Davis again. This is great. Now, there is a myth, says Ralph Davis, there is a myth circulating around the church that often goes like this. Believers in the Old Testament period didn't have the freedom and personal approach in prayer that we do. Their worship consisted of a very external, formal, cut-and-dried sacrificial procedure in which ritual killed off any spontaneity or intense spirituality. Hannah would say, that is hogwash. 
True, Hannah is still in 1 Samuel 1 and not in Hebrews 4. But once you see Hannah in prayer, how can you doubt that she has found the same throne of grace and knows something of the same boldness with its occupant? End quote, amen. She continues, there's no rock like our God, verse 2. Here's here's the solidity of God, the firmness of God, the reliability of God, and the protection of God. There is no rock like our God. So she's really rehearsing in miniature what we, we refer to as the attributes of God. That's what she's doing. This is a lesson for us. This is the way to true peace as regards prayer. Okay, if you struggle with prayer, remind yourself of the character of God. We were at a conference all week. The theme, Christ. In his humiliation and his exaltation. In the fact that he rules and reigns. He's the conquering king. The more you hear, I was talking with one of the guys that went up there with me. He said, the more I learned and was reminded about Christ and the character of God, the more love I have for God. So the way to true contentment is not looking to yourself. Don't go inside because that's where the mess is. You go outside to the one who's condescended to come to us. And, and remind yourself of his character. And that will provide inner strength. You can't just gird yourself up in yourself by yourself. We have to go to the source. This is the way to true spiritual contentment. That is to reflect upon the character of God, the attributes of God, the person and the work of God. God is holy. God is one. God knows all. God is everywhere present. All power in heaven on earth has been given to the Son. Rehearse that. Rehearse that over and over again. That's what she does. God stoops to have fellowship with us. He condescends to us. Jesus is not man who ascended to deity. He's deity who condescended into humanity, becoming a man to redeem our wretched, sinful souls. So here's a woman who's given birth to this little boy. And as she vowed, when he's of age, hands him over as a Nazarite for the rest of his life in fulfillment of that vow. And notice she continues on in prayer. The theme really is the providence of God. And notice here now, we see that God's providence covers both good and bad, both light and dark. Notice verses 6 through 8. Still reflecting on the character of God, she says, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, he raises up. The Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He, He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. And makes them sit with princes, 
and inherit the seat of honor. He brings down, he brings low, he destroys, he kills. God brings death. It's a tragedy when you go to a Christian funeral, and I've been at them in attendance, and some preacher gets up there and says, God wasn't in this. I heard a preacher, I about came unglued. I wanted to go pull them out from the pulpit. This was the devil's work, he said. God wasn't in this. Someone was in a car accident. That's a tragedy to think like that, let alone preach like that. Job had a much different perspective when he lost all 10 of his children and all of his wealth in a single day. So in in the midst of his difficulty, what did Job say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She acknowledges God is in this. God was in this. God is in this. He's sovereign in life and death. He exalts, he brings low. Hannah knew that. Hannah had been there. She exalts in the sovereign Lord, rejoicing according to the providence of God. So she she subjected herself even in the dark places. And you remember Job's response to his wife when she said, why don't you just curse God and die? What a woman. What a gal. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for the encouragement, honey. What do you say? Shall we not accept good at the hands of God and not evil? That is not dark places. This is why I personally don't like doing studies like this. But when they happen, God provides the grace. Does he not? But not until they happen. So Samuel would have never been born were it not for those dark places in her life. The ridicule, the mocking. Year by year, she often went up to the house of the Lord and she was provoked. Provoked. Hannah wept in response and would not eat. So I think here Hannah comes to the point where she saw a glimpse of of why God had allowed Penina in her life. And now she sees clearly the majesty of God, the sovereignty of God, the grace of God, the power of God in the midst of these um, dark places. So she's starting to see something of God's ultimate purpose. That she's one small part of God's greater plan. And we're about to see that. Notice how the song begins. I rejoice in your salvation. Right? And then notice how it ends. 
There's, there's talk about, don't miss this, a king. There's talk about a king. There are no kings in Israel yet. Okay, this is 1 Samuel. There are no kings in Israel. She's talking about a king. And perhaps it's the expectation that's expounded upon in Deuteronomy 18. There had been talk, right, of a prophetic, this prophetic disclosure of the king who would be born, a king who would come. And Moses said, listen to him. Listen to him. There's mention here of an anointed one. Now, we can run ahead to the New Testament. And, and, and we can read another song cited in the Gospel of Luke known as the Magnificat. Bringing low and exalting. You see that language there? Of Mary. It's exactly how she felt. Now, I, I, don't, underst- I don't know how much Hannah understood what she was saying here, but she certainly caught a glimpse that, that part of God's strategy and whatever he's working out uh, in the personal affairs of her own life was that once again, a far greater work that was being done outside of her. The same was for Moses, remember? That was the case of Moses. We see this theme throughout Scripture. It's amazing. So ultimately, we see it was salvation. Her, her small little experience of pain was followed by deliverance. And that's a picture that continues to grow throughout Scripture. Deliverance. Trouble, deliverance. Darkness, light. Slavery, freedom. Grief, glory. Now we can turn the page from Malachi to Matthew and we behold something of the fulfillment that that Hannah prays about in the midst of her pain. And that is that God was working out a plan and a purpose to send his own son. He is the king. He's the anointed one. And that anointed one will come as king of kings and lord of lords and will reign forevermore. So this is just a shadow of a far greater work that God is unfolding throughout redemptive history. Miller points this out in his book. I quote, Intriguingly, the climax of the prayer is not the birth of Samuel, but the coming, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the King. A prayer in the spirit of Genesis 4 for the God of judges to send a rescuer who's now identified explicitly as Messiah. Amen? Amen.